To put this episode into its historical perspective, it was recorded one hour after the live broadcast of the acceptance speeches of Kamala Davy Harris, the 49th Vice President, and Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., the 46th President of the United States of America. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Elvira Williams, a loving and dedicated wife and mother who may have been poor in earthly possessions but was oh so rich with the spirit of giving. Hello and welcome to My American Friend, a podcast about my American friend. We'll talk about whatever topic comes to mind. It's free thought, free association, religion, politics, food, COVID-19, not necessarily in that order, of course, as a way of gaining an insight and an understanding into someone else's life, particularly during this most challenging of times. It's a way to connect. I want to know what's happening outside of my sphere of influence. So yeah, I guess 15,000 kilometres or 9,000 miles away, I felt was a good place to start. Why? Well, I blame my dad. He introduced me to Alastair Cook's Letters from America. I was always fascinated by that, although in this case I'm from Australia, but I'm speaking to someone from America. I digress. Please, sit back, relax, grab yourself a VB or a Schlitz, or in my case, an ice-cold Coca-Cola, and I hope you enjoy listening to My American Friend. I'm speaking with my American friend, Jake. Hello, how are you, Val? Wonderful, thank you. How are you? Does this this find you safe and well uh, uh, under the... I've been quite well. I've, my family's all been well. As a matter of fact, I, um, I really do not know anyone personally that have been inf- affected by the virus. So I'm really uh, blessed. Uh, I've been doing awfully well. Well, you know, it's firing out of control here in the U.S., um, and so hopefully we'll get some new leadership in that direction to kind of bring it under control. It, it, it could be on track to two hundred thousand a day. That is just yeah. I look at I look at my situation. No one in my family is is ill. Right. Uh, I have two friends, unfortunately, that have lost their mothers. We're yeah, we're 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 blessed. I just want to give our listeners a little bit of uh, of, a, of a sense of where you are now jake is currently based in montgomery alabama let's have a look it's uh currently 20 degrees that's about oh 68 degrees fahrenheit so it's a tad warm it's saturday uh quarter past nine is that right jake Nine fifteen. yep that's about right give us a sense of the space that you're in what what are you what are you seeing right here right now okay i live in a townhouse all of our uh, houses are connected. Uh, uh, you know, like I said, we live in a townhouse and it's a very uh, racial mixed community uh, of blacks and whites. Pretty much a thing when I come in my house, I don't see anybody. The only time you see people is when you come in or going and they happen to be doing likewise, you know. I'm not where I grew up at. I'm I'm in the city. <laughs> Apparently, the wind speeds around about eight kilometers. What's that? Five miles uh, per hour. Uh, as of the 2018 census, there were 198,218 residents in Montgomery, and the mayor is uh, 
Stephen Reed. There you go. Um, uh, Montgomery will be uh, was two hundred years old uh, this past December, and uh, Stephen is the first African American to be elected mayor of our city. It's taken far too long for there to be a, a, a first uh, vice president uh, of, of color, but also from 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 Indian uh, as well as African American descent. And that first female. Yeah, a number of firsts and and things out of left field, so to speak. I mean, Georgia's flipped to blue after, what, 18 years, six elections. Richie Torres, um, the first Afro-Latino gay black man uh, in the US Congress. Sarah McBride, first openly transgender state senator in um, in Delaware. Stacey Abrams has, has, has come into her own. Pretty much the largest voter turnout in, in electoral history. Yeah, let's let's hope the floodgates stay well and truly open. <laughs> well, you know, uh, we had that hope uh, in 08 when uh, Barack Obama got to be elected um, president of the United States, and we thought we had moved beyond a lot of things. But came back 2016, it kind of reversed uh, back on us, and uh, we found out we was in. Uh, you know, right back. But, you know, let's, like I say, let's hope. Let's hope <laughs> we're moving forward. There's hope. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, replaced hope with nope. <laughs> hey, we, we got something going on here. <laughs> Still the fact that, that 70 plus million people voted for 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 uh, the current president and 74 coming up 75 million voted for Biden and Harris Jake I've always had uh, and I say, I say this in every podcast I've always had this love affair with with uh, the United States of America cannot just write it off as a, this inherently destructive racist country uh, but but it it appears as though there still is something of a divide Jake what what are your thoughts on on that well, we, we have a great divide, you know, as as you noted that uh, President-elect Biden uh, received somewhere like about 74, 75 million votes, where President Trump received 70 million. So we are a divided country. And, you know, uh, we've always been a divided country. But the difference is right now, we always had a president who served as the president of all people. With the exception of this president we have now, uh, uh, he made a point of dividing them. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, and President-elect uh, Biden's speech on tonight, he emphasized that he's going to be president of all the people, not just people of the blue states, as we call them here, the blue state and the red state. Uh, he emphasized that he's going to be president of the United States. Well, the president, uh, president, uh, president that we have, uh, it was his, um, it was his uh, thing to divide yes. us against them, and uh, we've we, we've been running on this fume for four years now. So it's time for us to heal, and it's going to take a lot of healing. But um, we 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 we've always been a divided country. But we always uh, reconciled our differences and came together. And um, but uh, the, again, I, I have to keep on repeating. I guess I, I'm sounding redundant, but um, 
we presently have a president who don't who wants to uh, divide, divide and conquer. And with the uh, Obama Biden administration, they had an understanding in regards to what was going on. Biden, the vice president, was going to be the last person to leave the room. He was going to be able to tell the president what he honestly thinks. Mm. You know, that's something to be said. Do you feel as though there is still the, the, the possibility between now and January 20th for for great civil unrest? It could devolve into, 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 into violence? I, 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 I believe so. You know, um, uh, there is uh, in the... Uh, president-elect speech tonight, he did not uh, uh, throw out any red meat. But the present president, once he speaks, he may, he may uh, be the, he, he'll throw out red meat to incite his uh, followers, and there's no telling what they may do. And they, go, they will do anything that he says or, 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 or believe. And uh, so uh, there's, there's, there's quite a uh, possibility that we may have uh, civil unrest before, uh, before this thing is over. Yeah, let's, uh, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily a, uh, an overtly religious uh, man. I'm still quite fond of the phrase, let's pray. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> Just thought I'd run through quickly for the listeners what um, what it is that Montgomery um, represents in terms of art and, and culture. I mean, Nat King Cole danced to many a Clarence Carter tune in my time. Melvin Franklin from uh, from the the Temptations. Hank Williams of, uh, of the the Senior writers and poets. Everett Maddox, the deep deep uh, civil rights. History, Martin Luther King Jr., of course, Rosa Parks, and and that really encompasses a lot of your history, Jake. Would you be able to give us a a sense of in the early days? Now, first of all, uh, for your listeners, I'm 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 presently six seven, and next month I'll be sixty eight years of age, but. Um, I, I've considered myself as a, a product of a child of the Jim Crow South, a system of, 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 uh, of uh, discrimination of laws and, and things that uh, disenfranchise uh, black people. And it, and it enforced racial segregation, did it not? Forced racial segregation. Uh, so I'm a product of that environment. Um, I'm the I'm the baby of sixteen kids. Wow! There was uh, all of us was born at home. <laughs> there was no such thing as being born in the hospital. So my mom, the extent to prenatal care was to let the midwife know that she, she was going to need her in nine months, and that was the extent of prenatal care. But being a product of the Jim Crow South, now I, I live in Montgomery, but you got to understand, I grew up about 20, 25 miles outside of Montgomery in the rural uh, Lowndes County, Alabama. Lowndes County is directly between Selma and Montgomery. And that's where the majority of the, if, if your listeners, I'm sure have heard of the 1965 Selma to Montgomery Voting Rights March. The majority of that march came through Lowndes County, Alabama, because it's it's situated right between uh, Montgomery and Selma, Alabama. 
so being the uh, uh, the last of 16 kids and grow, growing up in the rural, in the country, uh, I'm oftentimes referred to as growing up in the cotton field. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, you know, certain things I, as an African-American male, there are certain things that happens right now that I realize just, just, I go walking every day. And when I go walking, there's a hospital across the street from the park, but uh, the hospital workers are not able to smoke on the campus because it's a smoke-free environment, the hospitals. So they come across the street where, and I walk by them and I will, I I make it a a point to speak to them. And I notice sometimes that some will speak, some will not. Mm -hmm. Does that seem like a big deal to you? But being an African-American male, I pick up on that. Uh, That was a situation um, about a year or so ago. I witnessed a young lady, her her truck hydroplane, and it just uh, real violent and and stuff. So I I turned around and came back to offer my assistance because that's what you were supposed to do. And she said, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm saying, you know, but my thing was, is that you always stay there with that person until someone arrives. And that's what my intention was. But pretty soon I got a, a guess, uh, I got an idea of what she was saying because she expressed to me in some very strong manner. My boyfriend will be here in a minute. She was a white uh, female. And what she was saying to me, she she was trying to say to me, hey, my boyfriend's going to be here, so you better go ahead. And, uh, you know, I'm just thinking I'm supposed to be there to give assistance. Uh, another situation when I I, I was uh, uh, I went to the United States Navy and served in the Navy, and when I report to my first duty station, I had this great big old uh, 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 white guy that was my uh, uh, my commander, and I reported to him, and he says to me, he said, "What's your name?" And I said, "My name is uh, Jake, sir." Uh, no, I ain't on young Jake. I'm, I'm gonna call you Willie. Your name gonna be Willie. And that was saying to me that when you are black, you ain't supposed to have no name like Jake. It's got to be Willie or James. Mm-hmm. And and the most explicit things you can do to a person is is mess up their names or, or not call them by their names. You know, it's just certain things being a black male here in the uh, America, in the United States. That's just certain things that you just kind of know or you just kind of feel. Mm-hmm. I never went to an integrated school. Uh, when I grew up as a child uh, in my county, there was like about 69 little one-room schools for the blacks. Wow. Where the whites had these big, nice buildings and stuff. Uh, and, but us, us blacks just had these little little one-room schoolhouses in, in each community. Uh, we just had no bus transportation, no, no nothing uh, compared to what they had. Uh, so these are the kind of things I endured. Uh, like I said, I'm the baby of 16 kids. I was one of only three that graduated from high school. I was the only one to go to military service. I was the only one to go to college. I went to Alabama State University. I have a degree, uh, a, a bachelor's of science degree in uh, history. And um, when I arrived at Alabama State University, um, met up with some other people, and they said, 
Are you going to pledge what what ple- uh, Greek organization you're going to pledge to? And I'm saying, uh, I'm not going to pledge to any because coming from the cotton fields of Lyons County, Alabama, I knew nothing about Greek organization. Yeah, Alpha, Alpha Beta Kappa Delta. <laughs> yeah, you know, and my thing was, you know, why am I joining a Greek organization? I can't speak Greek. <laughs> coming from the cotton field, I didn't know any better, you know. Oh, well. But um, I've been out. I graduated from high school in 1972, and uh, uh, school integration came about roughly about 1965, 1966. And the county that I'm from, Lyons County, Alabama, um, when integration came about, there was a vacant school building that was not being used at the time. Now, a thing I didn't tell you and your listeners is that Lyons County, Alabama is 80% black, 20% white. That was true in 1965. It's true today. Wow. So, but in 1965, no blacks in Lyons County, Alabama could vote. So therefore, the school board and the superintendent was all white. So when it came about school integration in 1965, 1966, what the school board did, they, this school building, a whole school building that was not being used, they deeded that property to the white citizens of Lyons County for $1, $1. And to this day, if you come to Lyons County, I would take you to the building where all of the white kids still go to school at in Lyons County. There are no white kids in the public school system of Lyons County, Alabama, mm. given a building to a, a private uh, school where they didn't have to go to school with, with blacks. Cannot um, comprehend how one could become used to that. Cotton was king. Um, uh, we pick. I picked cotton for it was two. We got paid two cents a pound. So if you picked a hundred pounds of cotton, you got two dollars. Wow. Now my mother set a goal that I had to pick fifty pounds of cotton every day, and uh, every day I would come up with forty six, forty seven, forty eight, forty nine pounds. I still got a whooping because it wasn't 50 pounds. But when it came to the end of the week, I had pretty close to, you know, $5. So with with uh, with $4.50, I go to Selma. That was where we went to uh, shop at. And uh, you go to Selma, you could get a pair. I could get a pair of uh, pants and still had money left over. Yeah. But uh, that picking cotton was, it was treacherous. It was extremely hot. And you look down that row and the humidity, the humidity here in the South is is something else. The Southern United States, Mm -hmm. it's really uh, something. But you stand up and look down those rows of cotton and the humidity would be so terrible. We always say there was monkeys dancing in our face because you could see little figures from the humidity in the the air. But Uh, picking cotton cotton it's 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 soft it's a it's a natural fiber but picking it by hand really isn't that easy is it no it's not no it's not uh, i don't know if your listeners can i don't know if they're familiar with cotton but it grows in a little in a little buzz like and you have to pick the cotton out of that buzz and it had little sharp 
edges on the end of it. It's hard to describe, especially if your visitors never seen cotton or understand what I'm talking about. It's like the cotton was in a, like for lack of a better description, like in a cup. But uh, around that cup, instead of being round, I mean, even you had little five little different spurs sticking out that you had to go down in between and get that cotton out. And sometimes those little spurs are sticking your in in the uh, on the top of your fingernails, you know. So you had to be real careful with that. It was, you know. Now there's a few people that still do cotton here in the, here in Alabama, but they have these machines now that can pick eight rolls of cotton at a time, and the operator of that machine. Is sitting up in an enclosed thing with air conditioning and a stereo. He's just going down the road picking cotton. <laughs> I mean, air conditioning. Yeah. Uh, but uh, no, none of that was for uh, none of that was for us. Um, you know, we used to do a thing where we um, fell. We would go out in the morning while the moon was still out and try to pick cotton and put it in our sight because a little wet uh, mist, we call it dew here in the South, uh, a dew would be on the cotton, so to give it a little bit more weight. So we would go out there before sunrise and uh, pick cotton. And, and, and so, you know, the moon would be so bright, it would be like daylight, you know, it would be so bright. Uh, so we would go out there and pick cotton to try to get a head start on the day. You know, uh, and we sit now, and, and me and friends and siblings, we talk about how did we make it. But the thing being was that we was not used to air condition. Uh, uh, so the heat was probably a little bit more tolerable because we was used to it. Yes. You lay down in bed at night, and you get yourself a piece of cardboard and try to fan yourself. You get so hot, you try to fan yourself, and... And uh, that's the way life was. I remember the windows in, in the house was not window panes, but it was like a door. We we heated ourselves. We, you, you made a fire in the fireplace and uh, you, you tried to stay warm there. And uh, we went down to a spring and got water to drink. I, I went just today uh, shopping at... Um, antique flea markets, and uh, I bought a dipper, and I bought a bucket, because we used to go down to the spring and get a bucket of water and bring it into the house, and we had a dipper. Now, we did not have glasses and, and cups. We all drank out the same dipper. I go in the bucket of water, get me a dip of water, and drink it, and I put the dipper back in there. The next person came along, they picked that dipper up, and they got them a, a water as well, because we didn't have glasses. I even bought a a, a wash tub. Uh, wash tub is was used for two purposes. When you got to take a bath, you took it in a tub. Yes. Uh, when you wash clothes on wash day, you know they use the wash tub. So, uh, so many things. There are so many things. Uh, after slavery, there was a system called sharecropping, and sharecropping, in my opinion, was more advantageous to the plantation owner than slavery was. 
Because what sharecropping entails was that uh, you lived on this man's in his little hut that you had to pay him rent for, and he let you farm a certain piece of land that you had to pay him for, and he would provide the cotton seeds, because that's what everybody did, plant cotton. He would provide you the cotton seeds and the fertilizer to uh, uh, make the, the cotton grow. And you get all this stuff from him through the year. If you needed some flour, meal, sugar, flat, fat back, or anything else, you got it from his store. And you put he put all of that on the books. And you and your family would gather the cotton from the field. And after you gathered the cotton from the field, he took it to the gin and sold it. Now, you don't ask him how much you made. He simply get with you at the end of the year and said, well, you know, you never, ever quite made enough. Mm. You always was in debt. And that was a purpose in that because you could not move off of his property as long as you owed him. I wasn't old enough to remember, but it was related to me. Uh, my parents was living on this man's property as a sharecropper. And my oldest sister was starting in her puberty years. And he kind of, the old plantation owner, uh, sharecropper, he kind of made note of it. Yes. That she was getting into her maturity and he was going to uh, have his way with her. Mm. So my dad went to Ohio worked in the steel mill and earned all of the money that he said was owed to him, came back, paid him, and moved his family off of his property. Wow. You know, even the thing when I was growing up, the only professional black people I was exposed to was preachers and teachers. Mm -hmm. And I remember one time my mom got sick and had to go to this doctor, this had this one little uh, doctor in the community. Uh, he was a white doctor. And uh, his office, I, I have a picture of it. On the right side, when you're facing that office, on the right side was a door for color to enter. It was a colored waiting room. And on the left side was the door for the white waiting room. And even from the nurses, uh, the black nurse, she was not really a nurse, but he taught her how to be a nurse. The examination rooms, that was one that was reserved for whites. And uh, they know not to ever put a black in that room. Goodness me. And I remember thinking to myself, black people can't be no doctors because I had never been exposed to that. Only professional black people I've been exposed to was teachers and preachers. And, and so there's something still sinister to sharecropping, even though it was a legal arrangement. It, it, it could be said that the difference between sharecropping and slavery is freedom. Sharecroppers were free people, slaves were not. But you weren't really free as a sharecropper, were you, if you were being held in, in place by that that debt? Yeah, that 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 owner was responsible for every, every part of your being. He could share some of that responsibility for you. Yes, yeah. So many children, so many members in your family. Family was, was and still is very important to you, I imagine. Oh, yes, of course, of course. You know, like I said, there were 16 born, but only 10 of us uh, survived up until any age. Mm. As I mentioned earlier, there was no such thing as prenatal care. Some died the same day they was born, and uh, uh, something didn't reach their first birthday. So there was only 10 of us that grew up. 
Well, well. Yeah, well, there's only four of us uh, living now, me and three sisters. Uh, are they are they in Alabama or are they elsewhere? Yeah, now, elsewhere, uh, two sisters are in Detroit, Michigan, and one sister is in Las Vegas, Nevada. You're a Bachelor of Science. Alabama State University is a, is a historical black university. Uh, it was created in 1867. Uh, right after the uh, the Civil War was over, and the, uh, of course with the Thirteenth um, Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, uh, uh, slavery was abolished. So these former slaves wanted to try to come up with some way of educating their children. So they came up with this Lincoln Normal School in uh, in Marion, Alabama, and, and that's significant because Marion. You probably heard of Coretta Scott King. She was born and raised in Marion, Alabama, in Perry County, Alabama. And this is where the school started out. It started out as Lincoln Norman School. Of course, it eventually moved to Montgomery and uh, came Alabama State Teachers College and Alabama State College for Negroes and other names before it finally uh, got to the point of Alabama State University does have such a rich history, uh, Alabama State U. I mean, it, it was, it's part of um, uh, the, uh, the the civil rights a- uh, activist um, Thurgood Marshall, the, the, the fund that was created by him, and he, he served as a, as a justice at the Supreme Court, right. very well known amongst uh, scholars in terms of what it, what it did for... Thurgood Marshall funds kind of uh, help out all HBCUs. Selma, Selma, Alabama, being known for the infamous... A bloody Sunday at, uh, attack on civil rights uh, marches back in 1965. Right. Did you have a sense of, of self or your family? Did they have a sense of, of self that particular moment in time? Things were going to get better or there was there was just no hope? Well, you know, you really don't know. You, you know, when, you know, you as of now, you at that time, you didn't really realize what was going on. There was people coming in and saying, don't you want your rights? Don't you want your civil rights? Don't you want to be free? And, and we said, yeah, but, you know, in my little mind, you got to remember, I was 12 years old at that time. In my little mind, I'm already free. So I didn't really, uh, I was heavily involved in the activities of those days. Uh, but I'm I'm not really sure I had a grasp of what was going on. Uh, I was just a child, and I was uh, something was happening. And I wanted to be in it. Mm. The extent of really understanding it, uh, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. You know, because I was born into a system that that's the way black people had been treated. I never knew anything different. You know, you had these workers coming into the deep south uh, trying to help uh, liberate us but uh, we had not been used to anything else so i i think you uh, theoretically realized that folks wasn't treating you right they wasn't treating you uh, uh, like like they was being treated at 12 years of age for me i didn't really realize what was happening Something to be said, uh, I, I guess, in a way, for the uh, the innocence of youth. Yeah, yeah, a lack of understanding, which doesn't come along until you reach a, a certain age, right? And uh, things things hit home. I did have a uh, a question here that was asked by Vanessa. Okay, been helping me out with this. 
podcast. When you were marching as a as a youngster, could you sense a pulse, as the song goes, something's happening here? Uh, I did on the Selma to Montgomery March. Now, the Selma to Montgomery March was five days. It was a total of 54 miles. Uh, for a great part of the march, most of the highway from Selma to Montgomery at that time was two-lane highway. Now, a part of it was four-lane, but the majority of it was two-lane. And when the federal judge gave the permit for the march to take place, he indicated that in that portion of the highway that was only two lanes, only 300 people could participate in that part of the march. So my sisters and I joined the march when it got back to the four-lane highway going into Montgomery. And when we got to the four-lane highway, as many people wanted to participate in the march uh, could. Now, my sisters and I, we went. Now, I'm falling behind my sisters. and. Um, I marched uh, 15 miles from campsite. There was four different uh, sites that they camped out at each night. And uh, so we marched from campsite number three to campsite number four, uh, which was into Montgomery, uh, which was about uh, 15 miles that day. So we marched uh, one day, 15 miles in there. To say that I really understood the significance of it, I can't say. Uh, uh, it was just something was happening. A lot of people was there, and I wanted to. We wanted to be in it, mm-hmm. and that's how. That's what we were. Uh, to really understand what was happening, uh, I'm not really sure. I I don't think I understood, and I don't I don't know if they did or not, because we were so used to the um, Jim Crow laws, the way of being treated, till we didn't know uh, about being treated better. Have you ever had the the deep conversation with as a as a as a way of trying to understand? Uh, did you get to have a, a a kind of a reckoning in that sense? It hits you. Wow, this is what mum and dad went through. No, not really. To be honest with you, we was extremely poor. So to sit down and have those hard to hard family conversation, we never did. It was just a thing of survivor. It was survivor. Um, honestly, I don't know what you, you if you know what um, fat bag is or not. But for most of our meals, a, a strip of fat bag, it's like a piece of bacon, but it's just all fat, no lean in it. Fat bag was our meat. For the most part, uh, our meals consist of, of greens because we, you know, collard greens, mm. cabbage greens, because we could grow that, or, or peas. Uh, and beyond that, you know, on Sunday, before we go to church, we did go to church. But on Sunday, uh, we may uh, they may kill a chicken off the yard. And that's why our eggs came from the few eggs we did have and fry that. And we have that with our Sunday dinner. But, um, you know, so what I was getting to is that we didn't have that that family where you sit down at the dinner table and you discuss things. We didn't have that. Yeah. Yeah. Frankly, we was too poor, you know. I remember Val, I remember one night I was crying. And my dad said to my mama, What's wrong with that boy? She said he hungry. So she got in there and she did some little uh flapjacks 
and she took some sugar and water and made syrup out of it. And uh, she fed that to me, and uh, uh, and I went to bed. You know, I got me drank some water, and I went to bed. You know, um, and when my mom died in 1990, which is 30 years ago, this coming December, uh, when she died, that's what I remember most. Uh, that was the thing I remember most. Uh, God rest her soul. Oh gosh, wow. <laughs> oh Jake, this is really, really really uh, uh, affecting me, but in a good way. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing sharing this. Sorry to jump around. May I, may I ask uh, how, how many years you, you served in the, the U.S. Navy and, and what that experience gave you in terms of... Uh... You know, I saw a thing on Facebook uh, last week and it showed a picture and said that how many people can ever say that they saw the sun set or sun rise above on the U.S. Uh, on the waters in the ocean, mm. because when you're on that, I was on an aircraft carrier, and when you're on that carrier, that that sun sits in the ocean, you know, and it rises out of the ocean. That's the way you see it, and very few people have ever experienced that. But I did one year of active duty, and I did five years of reserve duty. I was going to do six years, uh, but my dad died, and so there was no one home but my mother and grandmother. So I got transferred to uh, reserve duty for the other five years. Which carrier did you did you serve on? I was on the USS Saratoga. That was like about 100 uh, airplanes aboard that ship, and... Now, if I remember correctly, I don't forget how many thousands of men were stationed aboard that ship, but it was a floating city. Famous and, and rightly so. Civil rights uh, leaders, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, Vernon Johns, uh, Ralph David Abernathy. Uh, did you ever have the um, the, the pleasure of, uh, of, of meeting or, or uh, interacting with any of those? Oh. Rosa Parks, Ralph Abernathy, and uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, I've been in their presence. I've been in their presence. Uh, you know, now you got to remember, I was a kid. So I, we, you know, I, didn't, I didn't really sit down and have a conversation with them, but I, I met all three. I've been in their presence. Now, Lyles County, doing the uh, thing of trying to register Black people to vote, there was a group organized at Shaw University in North Carolina uh, called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. This was, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference that Dr. King was the president of. Mm. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference uh, and then the, the uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which we call SNEAK. SNCC was not really a part of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, but it was like the the college wing of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. This was basically consists of college students. So uh, SNCC, along with uh, 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 Southern Christian Leadership Conference, would send field workers into all of the counties in the Deep South to... Uh, try to register black people to vote. 
And I bring all that up because my county that I lived in, Lyons County, Alabama, there was two stu uh, uh, students that were sent there from uh, SNCC, Student Nonviolent. They sent two students there. And one of those students was Bob Mance. He was from Morehouse College in Atlanta. And the other one was Stokely Carmichael. He came from uh, Howard University in D.C. They were the two students that were sent to Lyons County to work. Now, Stokely Carmichael went on to be, uh, everybody knew Stokely. You know, I uh, a thing that I'm going to put on my mother's uh, grave real soon, I'm working on right now, was that she never had much, but she always had something to give. Uh, all those young uh, college students came into Lyons County. They didn't have nothing. And so my mom really was the first one to invite them to our house for, for dinner. Wow. The only thing we had was collard greens, cornbread, and fried chicken. But that was a lot to those uh, young college students who had nothing else. Yes. yes. So Cliff Carmichael in, in coming to Lyons County, his first meal was at my, my house, my mother's house, uh, our house. I don't know if you all heard of the Black Panther Party. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. Mm. Was started in Lyons County, Alabama. Now, how did it come by the Black Panther Party in Lyons County? Was well, simply this. When blacks finally got the right to vote and started, they wanted to run for office. Well, the Democratic Party was controlled by the whites, and they would not let the blacks uh, in. So they figured, okay, well, we'll just form our own party. And that's what we did in Lyons County. We formed another party and it was called the Black Panther Party. Now, how did we come up with the Black Panther? There were some older people who was illiterate. They could not read. As a matter of fact, I was not old enough to vote, but I bet you uh, one election, I took over 300 elderly Black people into the poll and showed them how to vote. Wow. When it came around to this, this thing, the, the whites would not let the Blacks into the Democratic Party, we formed our own party, and it was called the Lowndes County Freedom Organization. And then we need a symbol. Uh, so they came up with the Black Panther. And what they said to those uh, elderly, uh, illiterate uh, uh, people, even if you can't read, just look for that big black cat up there and just pull that lever on that big black cat. And so that's how the Black Panther Party uh, came about. And so when uh, they was trying to organize that in Oakland, they wanted to use that, Oakland, California, they wanted to use that same symbol. And so therefore they had to get permission from uh, uh, Lyons County, uh, Alabama to use that symbol. That's astonishing. Absolutely. And it, it's interesting to note that, that Stokely, uh, Stokely Carmichael uh, was actually born in uh, in Trinidad. Right. Yeah, right. but, but is, is will forever be remembered for his uh, his role in the um, Pan-African movement. And as far as Black Panther uh, is concerned, I, uh, I really try and educate. Uh, there's more to it than just a, a Marvel film and uh, show them images of uh, Tommy Smith and uh, John Carlos at the, uh, the 1968 Olympics. You, you must be so incredibly grateful and proud in a, in a sense that, that you were, even though you didn't realise it at the time possibly what it meant, but you were in the presence of these, these great individuals. Oh, yes, 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 indeed. And when 
one of them, Martin Luther King Jr., was was assassinated. Can you give us a sense of how that reverberated through through the community? Yeah, uh, I, I remember my mother uh, burst out into uh, an emotional outburst. You know, saying why they had to kill the man. You know, and she was crying and hollering. You know, in our community, we was. Uh, deeply saddened, but you know, the type of things that you see in a lot of instances, and I think even in, in some parts of the United States during that time, rioters and uh, stuff broke out, but for the most part, uh, we was far removed from that. Life took you down a few different different paths. I mean, uh, Alabama State University, Bachelor of Science in History, United States Navy. Later on in your, in your, in your 30s and 40s, where was life heading for you? How could I explain it? I mean, generally at that age, I guess we're kind of all at our peak. Yeah, yeah. Um, at uh, age 25, I got married and uh, had my first child. I think uh, that was right at my child was born in 78. So it was roughly the, um, my child was born in April and I graduated from the university in, uh, I believe, in May of that year. Of course, I had finished my coursework up in that, that December. Uh, I got a job. Uh, I was working at a department store when he was born, uh, but I later got hired with the State Department of Correction and uh, stayed there a little while, not long. But uh, that was a series of, uh, I never... Um, had my teacher certificate. I just did some substitute work, and I never did really uh, 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 do teaching for uh, a long period of time. So I, I bounced around with quite a few different jobs. Uh, I did a lot of things in life. I had I had a lot of jobs. Uh, of course, looking back over it now, you you regret a lot of things, but uh, you can't correct that. It's over. Uh, but uh, it it took me down a lot of different uh, uh, pathway, and I had a lot of great opportunities that uh, uh, wasn't available. You know, uh, being the as I said, I was the, I was a baby, so I went off to the navy, and uh, so it's just my mom and my dad and my grandmother at home. Then after about a year being in the navy, my dad died. So I uh, got a transfer and came back home to be with my mother and grandmother. And uh, uh, from that, that's when I started college on my uh, government uh, GI Bill, we call it here. Uh, I started college and uh, uh, did my degree there. And uh, I just, uh, I, you know, like I said, you know, the thing, oh, I think I want to point out is that like with my older siblings, they all moved away. But as they left here, they went and got jobs at Ford. And uh, well, of course, I was the only one left, so I wouldn't leave my parents. Uh, and uh, so I didn't, I didn't uh, like had the opportunity that they had to go. You know, people said to me in later years, well, why didn't you, why don't you go now? Well, I'm too old to go now. There was no point or purpose in me moving uh, north for other opportunities at that time. Selma to Montgomery, we've 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 touched on the Voting Rights March experience, and and then you've got the Birmingham experience, and and I really want to ask you the uh, the Tuskegee Montgomery tours. Um, 
two parts to the question, I suppose. What ended up taking you down the role, uh, down down the path of becoming a a tour guide? And could you give us a a rough idea of what you show people during that anywhere between three and and, and six hour guided tours? So it'd be impossible to to get it all down <laughs> today. But uh, first of all, what took me down? First, first of all, I'm a, I'm a history major, which is very much associated is very as a matter of fact i base my tours upon history but uh, i was at a national alumni conference and the president of the university announced that they was about to go into uh offer a new degree at the university uh and uh i think he, he might have said tourism and I said, I definitely got to go back and get me a degree in that. But when I checked into it, he said tourism, but it actually was hospitality. And uh, hospitality deal more or less with travel agents and, and that kind of stuff. But since I had struck my interest and in, uh, I just went ahead and pursued a thing of, um, uh, I, I established my company in 08 and uh, uh, as a, to a guy. That was a big year, 2008. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I love doing the, um, uh, what I call the Selma experience. Because when I get, get a, a person in Montgomery and I take them all the way to Selma, what I actually do with them, we retrace the entire Selma to Montgomery March. And there was a lot of things that happened. The and I, I trace them through all 54 miles. I take them from the capital of the, from the steps of the state capital to the steps of Brown's Chapel AME Church in Selma. That's where the march started out from. And across the Edmonds Pettus Bridge. I point out to them all of the different four uh, campsites where they camped out at each night. And I point out to them a lot of things that happened along the way. The, the, the campsite number four was at the St. Jude's, which is a Catholic facility, a church school and a, a hospital. And they had a huge uh, uh, area on the back of their uh, complex. And that's where the uh, marchers camped out at the uh, final night before they marched onto the state capitol the next day. But one of the things that happened because this archdiocese allowed the marchers to camp out there, all of the white doctors that was at the hospital eventually pulled out. And at that time, there was not enough black doctors to uh, sustain the hospital, so the hospital folded. But that was what I call a repercussion of that uh, march. At campsite number two, um, a black lady I knew personally that was in my community, her name was Miss Rosie Steele. Miss Rosie Steele had property there on the, on the highway. Another thing you have to understand is that uh, these people just couldn't camp out on anybody's property. They had to have permission and all that kind of stuff. So Miss Rosie Steele allowed the marchers to camp out on her property. Well, Miss Rosie Steele had a little grocery store. And... Uh, because she allowed the marchers to camp out on her property, her suppliers would no longer sell her products to sell in her store. Therefore, other black people that had 
little grocery store had to order stuff uh, for her to sell in her store. But that was another repercussion of that march. But as we go from Montgomery to Selma, like I said, we'd be backtracking because the march originated in Selma and came to Montgomery. But with my guess, we started in in Montgomery and backtrack all the way to Selma. And another thing, too, that I do with my guests uh, on that particular realm, when we get there in my little hometown, I I take them off the highway and show them a few things where I was born at and uh, my family graves. uh, We got 30, my family grave plot, there's like 35 of my family members buried all together. That's a lot of little extra stuff I show them, you know, more or less pertaining to me, you know, the the first house that my family owned that, that had indoor plumbing, indoor running water, you know. Uh, so I get to show them stuff like that. So I really like doing the Selma, uh, what I call the Selma experience. And we retraced the 1965 Selma to Montgomery Voting Rights March. Uh, the Tuskegee experience is it's a very unique, um, uh, of course, we got Tuskegee University there. And Tuskegee University is widely known because the the first, um, they call it principal, but at uh, this time they would call it the president of that university was Booker T. Washington. And he was an innovative person. But one person that he had working for him at that university was a gentleman named George Washington Carver. Uh, he was a scientist that uh, uh, did some 200 inventions uh, most notable with the peanuts, the many different things that you could do with the peanut and with soybeans. Uh, it was those things that he came up with are still, uh, and the sweet potatoes, the things that he came up with that you could do with those products. He was one of the most renowned scientists in America. And I may say to this day, you know, uh, especially of his age, of, of his the time he grew up. But Tuskegee was very much, uh, that university had a great uh, uh, deal to do with that. And and Dr. George Washington Carver uh, uh, was very much instrumental. On the campus of Tuskegee University, it's the gravesite of Dr. Carver, and uh, along with uh, Booker T. Washington and other real uh, uh, noticeable faculty members of the uh, university. They have a university cemetery on campus there. But there's a multicultural center there in Tuskegee that focused upon the syphilis study was conducted by the United States government on black men without their knowledge. And what they did, these was black men who was uh, uh, may or may not have been carrying um, sexual transmitted disease known as syphilis. And um, what they decided, what the government decided to do, after they came, even after they came up with a cure for syphilis, they elected to give some of these black men the treatment and others they elected not to, just to see how they would react. In other words, they took black men and they did the same thing that we do today with rats in the laboratory. Might have been 70s that uh, this was uncovered and uh, the uh, United States government was sued and the descendants of those people got settlements from it. 
But that was a very interesting study. Now, also in Tuskegee, Alabama, uh, and uh, during the Second World War, the, the first two black, black pilots from the United States was not allowed to do it here. They had to go to France. Their, their, their position was that these black men could not operate those complicated machines, these fighter, fighter pilots. Uh, but they established a flight school there in Tuskegee to train black pilots. But their, their real mission was to prove that they couldn't do it. But as it turned out, they proved that they was exceptional. The Tuskegee Airmen's Museum in Tuskegee that you would definitely uh, need to spend a whole day there just kind of studying uh, that. Yeah, they flew more than 15,000 individual sorties in, in Europe and North Africa during World War II. It's just absolutely astonishing. Have you ever met a Tuskegee Airman? Uh, no, I have not met any. No, I have not. And then um, the Birmingham experience, of course, uh, the darkest day in American history to this day has got to be September 15th, I believe, 1963. This Black Church, 16th Street Baptist Church. They was assembling for service, having Sunday school, and they was transitioned from Sunday school to the regular service. Now, what had happened in Birmingham, a federal court had ordered that the school must be integrated there in Birmingham, Alabama. Ku Klux Klans, uh, who was uh, dead set against integration. Indeed. And they was mad about this judge's order. So they was retaliating. And so what they did was set a bomb at that 16th Street Baptist Church. And that morning when they was getting ready for to get ready from Sunday school to worship service, that bomb exploded. And... Uh, there was five little girls in the bathroom down there. But one of the little girls was like in the in the toilet stall. So she did not lose her life. As a matter of fact, the governor of Alabama just a, a month or so ago issued an apology to this uh that fifth uh young lady that was in there. Uh she lost an eye. But uh, um, the other four girls died in that bathroom that day, and countless number of other uh, worshippers uh, was uh, injured. A, a little thing about that as well, because on that particular day, the Ku Klux Klans and other whites in Birmingham were celebrating the success they had in killing those kids. So they had had a big uh, rally that afternoon, and they was just all fired up about. Uh, after they left the rally, a couple of little, uh, white boys was on a motorcycle, and they was going in one direction, and a couple of black boys was on a bicycle coming the other direction. They just pulled out their gun and shot, killed a little black boy. And um, they admitted they had killed him, shot and killed him. Well, the judge said, these are nice boys, and they come from nice home, and we just can't mess up their reputation like that. So he gave them a, a six months probation. Good grief. And also later that afternoon, the whites went over in the black community, driving around in a pickup truck with their Confederate flags. And so, you know, they, they celebrating. And so the black uh, kids started throwing rocks at them. And somehow somebody called the police. And when the police got there, the black boys took off and started running. 
and they was running away. Police officers shot one of the black boys in the back and killed him. So the point that I'm trying to make on that day that the four girls got killed at the church, two other black uh, boys got killed that very same day in Birmingham. So that 16th Street Baptist Church is uh, is a dark uh, eye on America. And, uh, uh, you know, we had a lot of horrifics and horrible things to happen here in the United States. But the, uh, the murder of those four little girls got to be at the top. Also in Birmingham, there was a uh, a thing trying to get things integrated, and they started um, marching with the kids. And they the kids was headed out across Kelly Ingram Park, and uh, the um, public safety director ordered the fire hose and the dogs be turned loose on those kids. And you probably saw an image of that mm. Not, uh, diagonally across the street from 16th Street Baptist Church, where the fire hose and the uh, Dogs was turned loose on the kids. I uh, I bet people are uh, uh, emotionally and physically exhausted at the end of them, as as I imagine you are. Yeah. A good friend of mine who lives in um, in uh, Ohio, and uh, she's originally from Kentucky, and uh, until recently had been teaching uh, Navajo children in uh, in Arizona. Her name was Jolie, and uh, her her question is: Has race has racism do you feel genuine, genuinely decreased? Is there a, a, a palpable difference that you can feel and, and see, or is it still a, a, a grave issue? President Donald Trump didn't create racism. He just gave them a license to come out. It's, it's always been there. And, I, you know, my opinion, uh, racism, you can't legislate. Uh, my only way that I can see out of this is is uh, it have to die out. And how long is this going to take? Another 100 years? I don't know. Um, but I, I think it's got to be a thing. It's got to die out. Now, of course, um, we really thought things was getting better with the election of Barack Obama in 08. Uh, we really thought uh, we had uh, round the curve. But... As you can see from this past election, we're almost equally divided. And, you know, people say what they may, what they will, or what they please. It's, it's you know, they claim economics, this or that, but it's really racism. And when you got one of uh, the most racist president we ever had getting 70 uh, million uh, votes, President who wants to heal the nation, Joe Biden, uh, getting 74, 75 million. So we're pretty much still equally divided. Uh, only way I can see out of this racism is 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 through, uh, unfortunately, it's through death. Uh, it's got to die out. It's got to die out. You can't legislate to make people uh, do better. They They may pretend, but it's still there. So is things better? Well, of course they are uh, from where I came, from the cotton fields of Lyons County. Of course things are better. But as far as racism, it's it's still alive and well. Puts statements like there are fine people on both sides in stark relief. Yes. And I had to explain this to a couple of my students. Um, oh, why are people getting upset over over that statement? Well, 
my dear boy, it's not a conversation that I can probably uh, have with you in 10 minutes. We're, we're going to have to sit down and get a cup of coffee <laughs> or uh, or we might need something a little bit stronger. Thank thank you for, for answering that, that question, Jake. Uh, and I just wanted to note that 2020 has been a year where a number of great uh, African-Americans, including civil rights activists, leftists, Bobby Mitchell, John Lewis, died uh, nearly the same time as uh, the great Reverend uh, Cordy Tindell or CT. They died a day before the birthday of the na- of, uh, of um, Nelson Mandela. And Earl Graves Sr., Betty Wright, Charles Evers, Robert H. Smith. He was the son of a sharecropper. A U.S. Army veteran, he served in World War II. He was a retired educator who spent decades working at historically black colleges and universities, which is what Jake uh, referenced when he said HBCUs. Ninety-nine years of age, and uh, he uh, he managed to vote. I wonder which way he voted. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think we got too much of a doubt about that one. <laughs> Amen to that. Sport affected much in, in, in your life? Like I said, we had like all these little one-room schoolhouse. And I remember we had to do was actually get a milk carton and fold it up, and that was our ball. When you are poor, you improvise. You don't have the things other people have. Uh, so you you just do the best you can. We went to school barefooted, mm. you know. Right now, I cannot walk on a rock. When I grew up, all the roads was gravel rocks and you didn't pay no attention i i tried to walk out to my little out to my streets to my mailbox and uh it's as it's asphalt and i can't go out there without something on my feet getting back to sports we tried ourselves uh playing a little ball sound the the teacher bought us a bat and a ball uh to place a uh, softball with but i was never very much of an athletic person you know um uh, when I grew up, all of my brothers was ahead of me, and they was doing. I got up old enough to know myself. They had uh, left home, so I grew up with all girls, and so you know, I really didn't have anybody to pattern or to teach me stuff. May I take a completely different path just for a moment and ask you, what do you eat when you when you get the opportunity to eat out? Well, you know, being a tour guide, I, um, I'm constantly uh, seeking places to take my guests. People come to uh, the South here in the United States, they want something that is related to that region. And nothing more relate to the Deep South than soul food, and more particularly, Southern fried chicken. Uh, I, <laughs> I've, I've, I've actually had guests and said, I never made fried chicken. Come on, you don't make it, you fry it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I said, we got all kinds of different places here, but I basically, there's one little restaurant that I take a lot of people to, and it's a black-owned operated restaurant. It's in somewhat of a dingy-looking building. It's nothing fancy at all. And uh, I take my guests there, black or white, and I will. I always prep them to tell them uh, the building is not impressive at all. But really, when you go to this little restaurant, the chief of police is there eating. He happened to be black, but it's near the state office complex. You'll find a lot of white people in their three-piece suit or whatever. And, and to be totally honest with you, a lot of times I have white guests and I take them there. 
And I kind of feel what they're feeling or thinking, but they get in there and they see as many white people in there as it is blacks. They okay then. Yeah, yeah. Oh, dear. And it, it's a soul food, you know, but it's perfectly seasoned. And I've just had people to just thought I was the greatest thing since apple pie for taking them there. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine a, a tour just like just like the army. It runs on its stomach. Yeah, yeah. A whole bunch of little spatters of different kinds. There's a, a restaurant that specializes in Venezuelan. Uh, there's one that's Thai. Uh, those, especially those who are high on their diets, I take them to this Greek Mediterranean uh, uh, restaurant. Oh, yes. There's another one I take people to. It's uh, like Cajun seafood. It's not a, Montgomery's not a really large scale uh, food thing, but we do have a, a, a bit of varieties. You the know? greater Alabama area, that, 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 that would be another, another five podcasts, but I, or dishes that I remember uh, reading about because my dad was a, a big fan of Harper Lee, who was born in Monroeville, Alabama, and, and she would go to the same restaurant and, and eat catfish. We always hear about catfish, but we don't really know what it is. <laughs> Catfish is big. I, as a matter of fact, I was contemplating upon opening a catfish restaurant, but I got so many things I want to do and no money. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> but catfish is big here. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jake, where where to from here for, you, for yourself in the next, let's say, six months, maybe 12 months? Where Where, where do you see or hope to be? Well, I, I'm hoping uh, tourism is, is, is slowly coming back. Um, I, I, uh, my calendar was filled for this year, and of course, needless to say, it all got canceled out. Uh, so hopefully it's about to... Uh, uh, I've been uh, having a few tours here and there uh, lately, so hopefully they're fitting to come back in full force. Uh, I'm uh, looking real forward to... Um, I'm trying to negotiate on an old building uh, that I want to turn into a museum focused on uh, uh, things that happened during my uh, upbringing, Jim Crow South, uh, the kind of things I want to focus on. So uh, I'm looking very much forward to that project, and it probably is going to take me a couple of years, but uh, we'll just see how it goes. Hoping to get on the road and do some lectures, you know. Uh, high school, college, or whatever, civics organization, whatever, whatever will have me. And, um, you know, uh, but that, I'm looking forward to doing that as well. Uh, Montgomery is deep-seated uh, in history and heritage and um, civil rights activities. Seems like a lot of things came through Montgomery. Uh, I was trained to be a teacher, so it's still in my blood. I have a tour and I have young people. I key in on them. And I want to make sure they understand and relate to, you know, what I'm talking about. But so that's kind of been my uh, journey, things that I've endured, things that I still, at the age of 60, um, almost 68, I still endure. And, and things you see and you just know that that's the way our Jim Crow South has uh, uh, come along. Jake, God bless. Stay safe. Uh, my deepest uh, regards and warmest wishes to uh, to uh, your your uh, children, your uh, your family, everyone in that townhouse and around you. Let's hope that um, yeah, let's hope we get to January twenty with uh, 
some semblance of order. Exactly. We're going to pray on that one. (laughs) Thank you, Jake. All the very best. You have a great one now. And uh, at any time, feel free to give me a call. Thank you. Take care. Bye for now. All right. Bye-bye. Notes, topics of interest, and further reading. My American friend Jake mentioned his birthplace of Lowndes County. That's L-O-W-N-D-E-S. The county was named for William Jones Lowndes, whose father, Rawlins Lowndes, had been a Revolutionary War leader from South Carolina from 1775 to 1883. Apart from where Jake was born in Lowndes County, Alabama, there is also a Lowndes in Mississippi and Georgia. Fraternities and sororities, or Greek letter organisations, GLOs, also collectively referred to as Greek Life, are social organisations at colleges and universities prominent in the United States and Canada. Similar organisations exist in other countries as well, including the German Studentenverbindung and the Goliardia in Italy. The first fraternity in North America to incorporate most of the elements of modern fraternities was Phi Beta Kappa, founded at the College of William and Mary in 1775. It followed two other secret student societies that had existed at that campus as early as 1750. In 1779, Phi Beta Kappa expanded to include chapters at Harvard and Yale. By the early 19th century, the organisation transformed itself into a scholastic honour society and abandoned secrecy. In 1825, Kappa Alpha Society was established at Union College in 1827. Seven Sigma Phi and Delta Phi came along, Psi Epsilon 1833, Chi Psi 1841 and Theta Delta Chi in 1847, establishing Union College as the mother of fraternities. Now if I was to spell some of these out in the old Greek it'd be Psi Epsilon Chi Psi but yep it's all Greek to me. The USS Saratoga was a Lexington-class aircraft carrier built for the United States Navy during the 1920s. Originally designed as a battle cruiser, she was converted into one of the Navy's first aircraft carriers. In all, there have been six US Navy ships named after the historic Saratoga battles of 1777, resulting in a decisive victory to the Americans over the British in the American Revolutionary War. The Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, commonly known as the GI Bill, was a law that provided a range of benefits for returning World War II veterans. The original GI Bill expired in 1956, but the term is still used to refer to programs created to assist US military veterans. Passed by Congress on January 31, 1865, ratified December 6, 1865, the 13th Amendment abolished slavery in the United States and provides that, quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. The Voting Rights March of 1965, between March 7 and March 21, the Selma to Montgomery marches were three protest marches held along the 54-mile, 87-kilometre highway from Selma, Alabama, to the state capital of Montgomery. March 17, President Lyndon Baines Johnson addressed a joint session of Congress calling for federal voting rights legislation to protect African Americans from barriers that prevented them from exercising their right to vote as guaranteed under the 15th Amendment to the US Constitution. The iconic bridge, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, carries US Route 80, much of which was once part of the early trail known as the Dixie Overland Highway, stretches across the Alabama River in Selma, Alabama. It was built in 1940. It is named after Edmund Winston Pettus, a former Confederate Brigadier General, US Senator, and, wait for it, leader of the Alabama Ku Klux Klan. Because irony. With the goal of redeeming the soul of America through nonviolent resistance, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC, was established in 1957 to coordinate the action of local protest groups throughout the South under the leadership of Martin Luther King Jr. The organization drew on the power and independence of black churches to support its activities. 
The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNEAK as Jake referred to, was founded in April 1960 by young people dedicated to nonviolent direct action tactics. The SNEAK students remained fiercely independent of Martin Luther King Jr. and the SCLC, generating their own projects and strategies. Although ideological differences eventually caused SNEAK and the SCLC to be at odds, the two organisations worked side by side throughout the early years of the civil rights movement. HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, are institutions of higher education in the United States that were established before the Civil Rights Act of 1964 with the intention of primarily serving the African-American community. American Ed, What the Frosh Part 2. Someone in their third year is a junior. Someone in their fourth year is a senior. J-R-S-R, so on. These same terms apply in the same way to the four years of a standard high school. So ninth grade is freshman year, 10th grade sophomore year, 11th grade junior year, and 12th grade senior year. But these same words are not used to describe the years of graduate school. Years of graduate school are often just referred to by a number, or simply, I'm in my first year, or I'm a first year. Some types of graduate school may have other ways of delineating years as well. The three years of law school can be referred to as 1L, 2L, and 3L. And medical school is often broken up into preclinical, the first two years, and clinical, the second two years, which are followed by an internship and and residency, you know, because it takes a long time to become a doctor. Grad school, post-grad, college, huh? Tune into part three in the next episode to find out more. The American lawyer and civil rights activist who served as Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States from October 1967 until October 1991, Thurgood Marshall. He was the court's first African-American justice, and the fund that now bears his name, the Thurgood Marshall College Fund, or TMCF, is an American non-profit organisation that supports and represents nearly 300,000 students attending its 47 member schools that include HBCUs, medical schools and law schools. Its motto is, Where Education Pays Off. It's also interesting to note that Thurgood was part of a landmark decision of the US Supreme Court in which the court ruled that US state laws establishing racial segregation in public schools are unconstitutional, even if the segregated schools are otherwise equal in quality. It was Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, 1954. Separate but equal indeed. Formerly known as West Park, now Kelly Ingram Park, which was named in 1932 for a local firefighter, Osmond Kelly Ingram, who was the first sailor in the United States Navy to be killed in World War I, it's a four-acre, 1.6-hectare park located in Birmingham, Alabama. It is bounded by 16th and 17th Streets and 5th and 6th Avenues North in the Birmingham Civil Rights District. The park, just outside the doors of the 16th Street Baptist Church, served as a central staging ground for large-scale demonstrations during the American Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s. Reverend James Bevel of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference directed the organised protest by students in 1963 which centred on Kelly Ingram Park. It was here during the first week of May 1963 that Birmingham police and firemen, under the orders from Public Safety Commissioner Eugene Ball Connor, confronted the student demonstrators, almost all of them children and high school students, first with mass arrests and then with police dogs and fire hoses. Sarah Collins Rudolph, now 69, was 12 and permanently blinded in one eye by shards of glass when dynamite blasted through the ladies' lounge in the church basement on the morning of September 15, 1963. The explosion killed Rudolph's 14-year-old sister, Addie Mae Collins, and their friends, Denise McNair, 11, Carol Robertson, 14, and Cynthia Wesley, also 14. The Birmingham church bombing became a galvanising event in the civil rights movement. And those two young black boys who were killed several hours later, Johnny Robinson and Virgil Ware, they were aged 16 and 13, respectively. 
57 years later, in October of 2020, the Alabama governor, Republican Kay Ivey, following up her acknowledgement of, quote, one of the darkest days in Alabama's history, unquote, issued an apology and, I quote again, they most certainly deserve a sincere, heartfelt apology, an apology that I extend today without hesitation or reservation, unquote. Rosa Louise Macaulay Parks was an American activist in the civil rights movement best known for her pivotal role in the Montgomery bus boycott. The United States Congress has called her the First Lady of Civil Rights and the Mother of the Freedom Movement. Born February 4, 1913, she died October 24, 2005. Ralph David Abernathy Sr. was an American civil rights activist and Baptist minister. He was ordained in the Baptist tradition in 1948. As a leader of the civil rights movement, he was a close friend and mentor of Martin Luther King Jr. Born March 11, 1926, died April 17, 1990. Vernon Johns was an American minister based in the South and a pioneer in the civil rights movement. He is best known as the pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. Born April 22, 1892, died June 11, 1965. Kwame Touré, aka Stokely Carmichael, was a prominent organizer in the civil rights movement in the United States and the global Pan-African movement. Born in Trinidad, he grew up in the United States from the age of 11 and became an activist while attending the Bronx High School of Science. Born June 29, 1941, he died November 15, 1998. Booker Talia Ferro Washington was an American educator, author, orator and advisor to multiple presidents of the United States. Between 1890 and 1915, Washington was the dominant leader in the African-American community and of the contemporary black elite. He was born April 5, 1856, died November 14, 1915. George Washington Carver was an American agricultural scientist and inventor who promoted alternative crops to cotton and methods to prevent soil depletion. He was the most prominent black scientist of the early 20th century. Date of birth unknown, he died January 5, 1943. Coretta Scott King was an American author, activist, civil rights leader and the wife of Martin Luther King Jr. An advocate for African-American equality, she was a leader for the civil rights movement in the 1960s. King was also a singer who often incorporated music into her civil rights work. Born April 27, 1927, died January 30, 2006. Some of the notable deaths of 2020. John Robert Lewis was an American statesman and civil rights leader who served in the United States House of Representatives for Georgia's 5th Congressional District from 1987 until his death. He was the chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee from 1963 to 1966. Born February 21, 1940, died July 17, 2020. Cordy Tyndale Vivian was an American minister, author and close friend and lieutenant of Martin Luther King Jr. during the civil rights movement. C.T., as he was affectionately known, resided in Atlanta, Georgia and founded the C.T. Vivian Leadership Institute. He was a member of the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity. Born July 30, 1924, died July 17, 2020. Earl Gilbert Graves Sr. was an American entrepreneur, publisher, businessman, philanthropist and advocate of African-American businesses. A graduate of Morgan State U, he was the founder of Black Enterprise magazine and chairman of the media company Earl G. Graves Limited. Born January 9, 1935, died April 6, 2020. James Charles Evers was an American civil rights activist, businessman, disc jockey and politician. Evers was known for his role in the civil rights movement along with his younger brother Medgar Evers. After serving in World War II, Evers began his career as a DJ at WHOC in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Born September 11, 1922, died July 22, 2020. 
So many African-American activists, entertainers and artists we also lost this year. Chadwick Boseman, Kobe Bryant, Bill Withers, Little Richard, Betty Wright, Robert Cornelius, a.k.a. Bobby Mitchell, and so many more. Please take a moment to appreciate these and many other lives by searching for Rest in Power, notable black folks we lost in 2020. There is so much more to be learned from Jake and his incredible life and work. Please head over to mymontgomerytours.com. Five-star reviews abound. Check out a podcast called The Nod. It tells the stories of, quote, black life that don't get told anywhere else. I have two books to recommend this time. Bad Blood, The Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment by James H. Jones, published by Maxwell Macmillan International, and Who Were the Tuskegee Airmen by Sherry L. Smith, published by Penguin Books. This podcast could not have been produced without the assistance of my long-distance hair curler extraordinaire, Vanessa Hart Miller. A shout-out to Colin Chrome. Thank you, Colin, for introducing us to Jake Williams. My American Friend, Episode 7, Jake, was recorded November 7, 2020. Please reach out. Send me an email, info at mafpodcast, that's M-A-F, podcast.com.au. If you're celebrating it, happy Thanksgiving, and thank you for listening. Thank you.